This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to BIEB 152, Evolution of Infectious Disease. This is lecture number 17. Uh, this is HIV evolution. Uh, so today's lecture is another one where we're going to hone in on a specific pathogen, uh, but you'll see that we review a lot of the subjects that we covered. Um, this course is set up in a way that we, we build from the very beginning to the end, um, and so these are some of my favorite lectures because they're really rich uh, with a lot of content on the evolution of infectious diseases. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get into the, the show. So today I'm in the office, it's a little bit less distracting, but there's a trade-off. You guys know I love to talk about trade-offs and how to optimize on trade-offs. Uh, the trade-off is that you don't get pictures of Wrigley today. So yesterday when I was realizing that I was going to come into the office again, I decided to take a few pictures of Wrigley. Uh, like I said, she loves to nap and she naps in all kinds of different <laughs> positions and locations around the house. Uh, so that's the guest bedroom. That's where I give the lectures and when I'm at home. Uh, and she has claimed that bed for herself. Uh, that's where she gets away, uh, kind of has privacy and, and can take a good nap. And I have no clue why she put the pillow on top of her, but she optimizes her naps, that's for sure. Uh, she is outside in the backyard, half in the sunlight, half in the shade. Maybe that's some optimality as well. Uh, and that's her at night uh, laying on the couch. So, yep, uh, what does Wrigley do all day? She naps. I'm pretty jealous. Okay, moving on. Away from taking the temperature on Wrigley to taking the temperature on COVID-19. Uh, okay, last taking the temperature was pretty depressing. This one is more optimistic. There is another study uh, that has reported success with these monoclonal antibodies. Uh, if you remember, we talked about monoclonal antibodies in our lecture about different therapies for COVID-19 and their varying success. There were examples already where monoclonal antibodies were effective at um, suppressing SARS-CoV-2 uh, infection of cells in cell culture. Uh, so that's always the first step to developing new therapies, work with them in cell culture. And so now we have uh, two more examples. Uh, and we know a lot more about how these antibodies uh, actually work, and they seem very promising. Uh, so if you remember, the, what antibodies are, are, they are natural immune system reactions to diseases. So this is your, your immune system learning how to combat a disease, and that antibody targets something on the virus. And so when we talked about plasma and convalescent therapy, Basically, the way that that works is you just have this gamish of antibodies that naturally formed when a person had the infection, and now they're cured because of the antibodies. And so you give those antibodies from one person to the next person, but it's kind of a black box. You don't know exactly what you're giving them, how many antibodies there are, all of those different, you know, just mysteries that are, that are involved with the plasma. Uh, here, what you've done is you've isolated specific antibodies from plasma, from humans, and uh, you can grow them in the lab and then perform experiments on them to see how effective they are at dealing with SARS-CoV-2. Okay, so let me just go through these bullet points now. So in this study here, they, um, and I think this study was just 
published last week. I forget the exact date. But what they have found is that there are two antibodies that they isolated that are effective in cell culture, but also in rhesus macaques. The antibodies were isolated from humans, from convalescent plasma. And so now, now that they have found them, you know, the, the question that we all want to know is, you know, what's, what are the next steps? How far away are we actually to getting these as an effective therapy? So there's lots of hurdles, of course. So we've just worked with these in, in these, um, these laboratory systems so far. Uh, so eventually you'll have to do human trials, of course. But I, I have a lot of hope that they'll be effective. So in human trials, you're both looking at how effective they are at suppressing a disease, but also if they have any uh, side effects on humans. And you know, these are, these are antibodies that are generated by immune systems of healthy people that had a successful round of um, recovering from COVID-19. And so I, I think that there's a high probability that they will work and they won't have bad side effects. So the next step is, of course, FDA approval. Uh, this can be tricky. These biological um, drugs or therapies are um, not as established as chemical compounds for therapies, um, but there are 60 other monoclonal antibodies or over 60 that have been approved by the F FDA. So there is a precedence for this. And so hopefully that makes it easier to get approval for this, these monoclonal antibodies. Um, and then the last part of the equation is always how fast can you produce the therapy? And certainly uh, with these, you can actually do mass production. You can grow these monoclonal antibodies in cell cultures and you can grow cells in these huge bioreactors. And so it is pretty scalable and, and hopefully we can get uh, a lot of this produced quickly and get it out to uh, the hospitals. So I don't know, I feel good about this. So let's, uh, let's actually go into the data. Uh, you know that I love to look at data and show you guys data and explain it. So what is going on in this figure? So they all look about the same, same similar patterns. These are uh, these assays to look at the effectiveness of the monoclonal antibody at neutralizing the virus. Um, this is very similar to the assays that we saw before where we're, where we're calculating SC50. Um, for, for whatever reason, they're calculating something they call ND50. It's, it's analogous to SC50. And what they're doing is they're running the experiment where they have two different monoclonal antibodies, and then they have a bunch of different cell types. So this is, these are different cells that they're growing in these tissue culture plates. And then they, ha they also have different viruses. So they have this, the, this pseudovirus and they also have SARS-CoV-2. And so what they see again and again is this, this S-shaped pattern, which is indicative of the monoclonal antibodies being able to neutralize or suppress the viruses. And so this is all consistent and very good news. And the way that you sort of look, you know, you can look at these trends and sort of see that, you know, at some point, 100% are, are neutralized in all of them. So at some concentration, we have concentration on the x-axis here. And this is antibody uh, CA1, CB6. And what these are are just the calculations of this ND50. So you can see that they change per the different cell lines and per the different viruses. But the pattern is consistent. Each of these experiments was done actually twice, but this is just 
data from one replicate of each of these experiments. So that's looking good. And then what I really love about this paper is that they figured out the crystal structure of the antibody and they showed how the antibody is actually working on SARS-CoV-2. It is binding to the spike protein. That's the S protein. That's the thing that makes the corona um, shape for the coronavirus. So it's binding to this protein. We know that this protein is used to bind to ACE2. This is the, in gray here, is the human protein on the outer membrane of human cells that SARS-CoV-2 uses a spike protein. That's The spike protein is colored in purple and in pink. Um, and so it binds to here. The antibody binds to the spike protein and it binds in a way that it inhibits SARS-CoV-2 spike protein interactions so that they, they can't bind to the human cell and so they can't infect the human cell. Uh, so the mechanism makes sense. It's highly effective. And so hopefully this is a, a new therapy that will be out, you know, I don't, I don't know how many months, but hopefully within a year and hopefully we can design other uh, strategies as well, maybe even other antibodies so that we don't just give them sort of one antibody, but a combination of antibodies. I do know that lots of different companies are developing these and there is a common feature that the antibodies tend to always bind to the spike protein. That's probably bad news for its long-term effectiveness because you would ideally be, want to target sort of different features of the viral particle so that it basically the same idea with multi-drug resistance that it had, would have to mutate lots and lots of different parts of its particle or of lots and lots of different proteins. And so it'd be very hard for it to escape. Whereas if all of the antibodies that we create target the exact same part of the exact same protein, it might be easier for it to escape our, our therapies. But there's lots of people working on this, so hopefully it'll be uh, effective. Okay, let's, uh, let's actually get to the lecture. So evolution of infectious diseases is the class. Lecture is HIV evolution. So first, let's sort of, let's just learn about the HIV life cycle and a little bit about the parts of HIV uh, and how it works. And so the first step of the life cycle of any virus is for the virus to actually find a cell to infect, bind to that cell and get its genetic information inside of that cell so that the cell starts reading the genetic information and replicating the virus. Uh, and so the first step for HIV is that it binds to this receptor, this CD4 receptor, CD4 is also the cell type that, it, that it infects. This is an immune system cell, white blood cell. And so it uses this envelope protein, ENV is the abbreviation. Uh, this will, we'll talk about this um, later in the lecture as well. So remember envelope or ENV. So it uses that, that protein, it binds to CD4 receptor. But in this case, there are co-receptors. So there's other proteins on the outer membrane that the virus uses to recognize the cell and to initiate the infection. Um, and so these co-receptors are called CCR5. And this is going to be important to remember for later in the lecture as well. And CXCR4, we don't bring that up again. But just know that it's, you know, the uh, combination to unlock the cell is not just sort of a one-on-one -on -one interaction between the envelope and the CD4, but actually a sort of three-way or multi-way interaction to get into the cell. Okay, so 
once it binds, it then triggers uh, fusion and basically dumps it some RNA. Okay, so HIV is an RNA virus, like a lot of the viruses that we've talked about. Uh, it does. It is a little bit different in the way that it handles its genetic material and the replication of it and the expression of its genes. So it basically dumps all of this RNA and some proteins into the cell. Then it turns its RNA into DNA through reverse transcription. And then that DNA gets actually integrated into our genomes. And so on the first day, we talked about how a lot of uh, the DNA in our genomes, something about 8% or so, is actually relict viral DNA. So it's not, it's not derived from humans. We didn't get it from our deep ancestors, but we got it from viruses through horizontal gene transfer. Well, the way that that actually works is through these types of viruses that have these reverse transcription processes. And so when you get the virus integrating into the genome, you know, usually the virus sits there and will then trigger the rest of the life cycle replication, uh, assembly and production of, of new viral particles. And if, and if this gets out of control or if there's an immune response, it'll kill off the cell. And you know, that's, a, that's sort of a dead end for that DNA. But occasionally these types of viruses infect not just somatic cells, but the germline cells as well. The germline cells are what make uh, eggs and sperm. And so if that happens and they don't kill off the cell, then that viral DNA can be passed on through generations. And also a lot of times mutations occur that inactivate these viruses. And so they just remain these kind of dead viruses in the genome. And so uh, a lot of our genome is this sort of dead viral DNA. And it's not all junk DNA. It's thought to be mostly junk. Uh, but some of these genes are actually used by us for important processes, such as creating the placenta. And so that's, that's uh, pretty interesting. And so viruses infect us. They drive our evolution because they, they cause natural selection for us to try to avoid them. But they also influence our evolution by giving us genetic material that then we, tr we pass on through the generations and we can even use for, for different processes than they originally evolved for in viruses. So, okay, that's a tangent, but that's the life cycle and I just wanted to connect back to that first lecture. Okay, getting more into the nuts and bolts of HIV, but more so focused on uh, its genome and what we should expect given characteristics of its genome and how that shapes its evolution. Let's start here with this plot. Uh, so this is just your frame of reference always for genome size and mutation rate. And so HIV has a relatively small genome, less than 10 KB, right around there. KB again is kilobases, so 1,000 bases. So this is 10,000 bases. And we have a per genome mutation rate that is actually really, really high. So in the spectrum of RNA viruses, coronaviruses have the lowest mutation rate, and HIV has some of the highest, if not the highest, mutation rates. And so it has a lot of potential to evolve because they're just generating tons and tons of mutations all of the time. This is the structure of the genome. You can see that there's you know, just a couple handfuls of genes, and I don't have too much to say about this. It's just sort of for your own reference. But what is really interesting about HIV is that it actually has two copies of its chromosome. So this is really fascinating. It means that there's a lot of potential for recombination to happen 
uh, because these two copies can interact with each other and recombine. And it just it enhances the chromosome's ability to accumulate mutations and maybe even play around with if there's a bad mutation, uh, replacing it with the wild type version on the other chromosome. Um, it just really it, it gives it a lot of other ways to sort of tinker with the evolutionary process because it has these two copies, much like you know diploid organisms like ourselves. Uh, so it really does uh, help out its evolution and uh, has, has interesting consequences that we'll talk about later. Okay, so where did HIV come from? There's a bunch of questions that I have uh, that we're going to answer, and we're going to answer with phylogenetics. Uh, so what virus gave rise to HIV? Uh, this is humo, human immunodeficiency virus. And so where did it come from before it was in humans? So what species did it previously infect? Were there multiple emergences? Often we assume that there's just sort of one emergence event, uh, but maybe there's actually multiple emergences. When did HIV enter human populations? And where did HIV first arise? So the next three slides are all phylogenies that uh, represent HIV and SIV and other similar viruses. You're going to see that the topographies move around a little bit. Um, that's actually just because of where, where the different OTUs are and that different OTUs were being used. Each of the phylogenies shows similar information and each of the phylogenies does highlight a different feature to answer our questions. And so this is a, a nice reminder that these OTUs are going to move around the phylogeny, but their actual relative position to each other will remain the same. Remember that when you're reading a phylogeny, if something's at the top versus the bottom, it doesn't actually convey any information. It's the branching structures, and the branching structures can rotate around each other. So don't get confused when you see these things kind of mix up a little bit. The structure is actually the same in all of these phylogenies. Or I haven't gone through each and every OTU, but the larger features of the phylogenies are definitely the same. Um, and so this is just a sort of zoomed out view on the evolutionary history of these types of viruses. And so what we see is that the viruses, so here's HIV-1, or I'm sorry, HIV-2 and HIV-1. What this is telling us is that actually HIV did emerge multiple times, at least two times. We'll go into a little bit more detail in a second. We have SIV, so that's uh, simian immunodeficiency virus, SIV. And so simian, think of it as primate immunodeficiency viruses. These are isolated from sooty nose monkeys and also uh, chimpanzees. And we know that the most recent common ancestor to HIV-infected chimpanzees and the HIV-2, the closest relative to it, is found in these sooty nose uh, monkeys. And so that's sort of the, the picture here, but where it's been discovered that even the that primates in general have, don't have much of a history with this type of virus. And so where did it come from even before that? And so it turns out that the most closely rel related uh, virus is in cats. And then there's a version in horses and cows and so on. So there's a lot of different uh, mammals that actually have this virus or a similar type of virus uh, to HIV. And so its history was really spent with these mammals and more recently has moved into primates and moved into humans. 
Okay, so this is a phylogeny that now we can begin to see exactly how many emergences have led to the HIV pandemic. So what we see here now is a little bit finer resolution on uh, SIV and HIV. And what we see is that actually there's HIV-2 and there's HIV-1, but there's multiple emergences of viruses like HIV-2. So HIV-2A and HIV-2B, these are subcategories. They actually were caused by emergences, two separate independent emergences. So the way that we read this phylogeny is that when it's the black coloration, that's in other primates. And when it turns into red, that's when it turns into HIV human uh, virus. And then what we see for HIV-1 is actually that there's three separate emergences. So group M, group N, and group O. N and M are very closely related. O is a little bit more distantly related, but they're all, ca they're all caused by similar viruses called HIV-1. And later in the lecture, we are going to talk about differences between these subtypes and specifically HIV-C. So remember that HIV-C is a subtype in this group M, and we're going to look at how these things vary and which ones are actually uh, more adapted than other ones. Okay, and so now I want to get to the question of dating. And so this is from a study from 2009, actually from a fellow UCSD professor, Joel Wortham. Um, he's at the medical school in Hillcrest. And so this is work that he did. I'm not sure at what stage of his career, but he found uh, very specific dates for when he thought and when, when we could estimate when HIV-1 and HIV-2 spread into the, the human population. And so this is, I don't know if you remember, we, we used this phylogeny earlier um, to teach about molecular clocks and how you backdate, and this is the phylogeny that uh, Joel published. Okay, so we have these, this group that leads to a, the two emergences of HIV-2, and then we have this group that leads to the three emergences of HIV-1, um, and then we can use sequence information, this phylogenetic information, and we can create a molecular clock in order to figure out specific years even that we think that this virus um, emerged into human populations. And so HIV-2 strains A and B emerged in 1932 and 1935. These are very specific. There is some error associated with it, but um, you can think about the 1920s to the 1940s are when HIV-2 emerged. Then for HIV-1, the prediction wasn't as specific. And so for M, it was 1900s. N, it was actually 1963, but there's error around that. So think 1960s and 1920s for O. These dates actually correspond well with the first known case of HIV uh, was in 1959 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, so this is sub-Saharan Africa, kind of in the center of the continent. So yeah, so that's, that's when it emerged. So 20th century, we really didn't know about it until the 80s. And so it took a very long time to sort of spread in human populations until it turned into a worldwide pandemic and really started taking off and causing, you know, the crisis in the 80s and 90s associated with HIV. Okay, so that's kind of where it came from, uh, when, it, when it happened, and so forth. Uh, now let's get into a little bit more of the biology and, and the evolution of HIV. 
And so one of the interesting things about HIV, and there's a bunch of studies that have shown this actually, is that there appears to be a trade-off between beta transmission rate and V or virulence. What we measure for virulence here is viral load. So it's like the number of particles that are created during an infection. And so the higher that is, the more deadly the virus is. And so the more deadly the strain is that, that produces that high viral load. Um, so there's lots of genetic variation in HIV. And some of this genetic variation affects these two variables, beta and virulence. And the way that it affects it conforms to this trade-off that I've talked about before. And so this is, this is the paper that we're going to talk about. And here is the first bit of data, and this is establishing the trade-off curve. The figures that I'm showing you today are a little bit more complicated than, than normal. Um, they're going to show trends. Often they're mixing data and model predictions together. And so I, I'm not able to give you a very specific description of the data that goes into each of these figures, um, but we're going to walk through the, the trends and what the overall figures tell us. Um, and so in this figure here, we have, this is virulence on the x-axis. So this is that SPVL, uh, that's a viral load. So the copies of the virus per milliliter. So it's concentration of viruses. And so there's different strains that have different abilities to make either infections that cause high concentrations of viruses or low concentrations of viruses. And then there's uh, transmission rate per year. So this is that beta. This is how effective a strain is. And so when we combine different types of data, um, we find that there is this trade-off curve. Notice that the trade-off curve is different than, than the ones that we had gone over before. Before, we had always talked about this as being just sort of a, a straight line, right? And we had that phage data that showed that straight line. And so sometimes these trade-offs can be very straightforward. They can just be a linear relationship between these two variables. But other times, trade-offs can actually take more complex relationships. And so this one is nonlinear, but it is this increasing relationship. It, at, at its heart, it's very similar to that line that we looked at before. And so we see that there is this relationship. And I think what you should also take note of is that that relationship is overall pretty shallow. So lots of increase in virulence doesn't give you that great of payoff uh, in terms of beta. And so this is the type of trade-off, uh, and they've done the, the mathematical modeling to show this as well, that you should get selection for attenuation or selection for the virus to become less and less virulent, to become more and more benign. And so the question is, this is the feature of HIV that they're able to measure. These are all variants from Uganda. And uh, so then the question is, in Uganda, is the population of HIV evolving through time to be less and less virulent, more and more benign? And in fact, when they look at the data, this is actually what they find. Okay, so on the x-axis, we have time. And so these are periods of time where different data were collected on uh, the HIV. That's the gray are these data points. Um, this is a box plot that describes the mean with this line in the center. Um, and then the box describes some level of variance, and then these error bars describe even greater levels of variance. This is just a way to sort of summarize the data and capture not just the mean, but also how much variance there is 
in the measurements being combined here. And so what the important feature is, is that you can see that these means go down um, from one year to the next or one time period to the next time period. And overall, there is this significant decreasing pattern. Um, so on that y-axis, we have SPBL. Uh, remember, this is concentration of viral uh, particles uh, created during infections. And so we have this sort of decreasing slope, which means that the virus is changing over time. It's evolving to be less and less virulent. So that is really cool when um, your theory of what should drive the evolution of viruses actually lines up with real data. So this is also a very similar pattern is being seen at a global level for uh, HIV-1. So HIV-1 is the HIV that has spread more globally and, and is everywhere. Um, HIV-2 is more regional and, uh, and contained in Africa mostly. So HIV-1 is the one that we focus a lot on and is, is causing the global pandemic. And so remember in HIV-1, there was the M and an O, larger categories. And then within M, I think there were these subcategories of A through H or something like that. So what we're doing here now is we're tracking the, the types of these sub-subcategories. Uh, so HIV-1C over time has increased in frequency um, in all of these different regions. So these, this is all in Africa, East Africa, this is in China, South Africa, uh, and in Brazil, we have this trend where HIV-1C is supplanting other HIV-1 subcategories. And so what we see is that, especially in China, it's very clear that C is taking over. C is dominant in South Africa, C is increasing in Brazil and increasing in these other countries as well. And so this is a pattern of natural selection, and it suggests that there is some characteristic of C that is helping it spread. And what is well known about C is that C is not as virulent as the other HIV-1 sub-subcategories. So this is further evidence that there is natural selection acting on HIV to make it you know, not friendly, but a little bit nicer, I guess. Uh, I don't want to say that about HIV. It's a, it's a very terrible virus that's you know, obviously hard to, hard to recover from or impossible to recover from. But there is evolution to make it less uh, virulent. Okay, so the next section, what I want to go over is HIV evolution within patients. And so HIV causes these infections that last for decades. And so there's a lot of opportunity for the, the virus to actually evolve as it's infecting uh, an individual patient. Um, and so researchers have gone into, just like Tammy Lieberman did, where they look at HIV over time and see how it's evolving within a single patient. And so the study that I'm going to talk about is this one here. So population genomics of intrapatient HIV-1 evolution. And just quickly, this is just talking about their sampling strategy. Um, so they, they would isolate plasma from different times um, during an infection. They would get the HIV-1 RNA out of the plasma and then this is just sort of nuts and bolts stuff if you're interested in, in this sequencing technology. Um, all of our sequencing technology is 
focused on sequencing DNA. And so you create cDNA from this RNA, uh, you amplify it, you then prepare it for the sequencer by making these libraries, you sequence it, and then you have to use a computer to put back together all of these different fragments of sequence. You don't have to really worry about these different steps. Just know that we're getting the RNA out, we're able to sequence it, we're sequencing massive pools of RNA that are isolated from this plasma, and we're isolating the plasma at different time points. And so here are the evolutionary dynamics that are revealed. Uh, so really complex. So what do we have here? On the uh, x-axis, we have time. And on the y-axis, we have SNP frequency. And so this is where mutations arise. They occur in the genome, and they increase in frequency. Uh, and they can spread through the population. We see that some mutations fix in the population. So many of them actually fix in the population. But there's also many mutations that kind of fluctuate around and eventually rise uh, and then go extinct, maybe because this mutation is beneficial but wasn't as good as another mutation and got uh, pushed out of the population. It's un unclear exactly what's underlying each and every one of these um, trajectories, um, but the overall pattern is that there is a lot of evolution that you can actually see in terms of it, you know, the gene frequency changing over time uh, in this population of HIV within a patient. So the question always is, is what is the dominant force acting on their evolution? Are these patterns caused by natural selection or genetic drift? If it's natural selection, then we know that it could be changing its phenotype, and we'd want to know that. Um, how is it changing its phenotype? Is that bad for us? And or if it's drift, then you know it seems that the virus is not changing, and so we don't have to worry that much about evolution. And so they did an analysis where they looked at different categories of proteins in HIV, so envelope, accessory, structural, or enzymes. Accessory, those are, it's kind of like a grab bag of proteins that help it avoid the immune system and help it just replicate in the cell. Uh, envelope, those are ex external proteins that tend to interact with the immune system. Uh, structural proteins that, you know, builds the particle and, and gives it integrity. Enzymes are for replication within inside the cell. And so, what they've done is they've looked at the accumulation of mutations in these different categories of genes over time. That's what this, this graph is showing. Uh, so divergence is gen basically number of genetic changes or, or fraction of genetic changes that are occurring in these different types of genes. Uh, so you start out with very little genetic divergence, and then over time you have increasing amounts of genetic divergence. And they've split the types of mutations into two different subcategories which are dashed lines are for synonymous changes and solid lines are for non-synonymous changes. And so I ask this question, given what we have learned about synonymous and non-synonymous mutations, do the different trajectories make sense? So just sort of sit back and think about it, you know, and think about this data, picture what's happening and what it's trying to show us. And you know, this is a very open-ended, very vague question. Does it make sense? You know, given the things that we've learned already, does this make sense? I'm just going to pause for a second. Okay, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> it's a very open-ended, very big question, but um, there are features of what's going on here 
that seem to make sense in terms of what we've learned about already about how um, evolution works at the molecular level between synonymous and non-synonymous mutations. So when I saw this figure, I was really excited because what it's showing here is that if you're a synonymous mutation and you occur anywhere in the genome, in envelope proteins and accessory proteins and enzymes and structural proteins, you will accumulate those synonymous mutations at the exact same rate. So this is what we, what we expect with neutral theory, that there's just sort of an underlying mutation rate that is giving rise to these mutations. They, they're not acted upon by natural selection, and so they just accumulate in the genome in a very clock-like manner. And where you're at in the genome doesn't matter, what gene you're in doesn't matter, your function doesn't matter, because they're not having any effect on phenotype. And so that is a really nice, nice pattern. And then what we see is that different types of genes, though, in terms of non-synonymous substitutions, have different rates of divergence over time. And so the next questions are about those different rates of divergence. So I won't give you the answers quite yet. Okay, so which type of genes experience purifying selection? Think about the DNDS ratio, and this is giving us similar information as the DNDS ratio. Okay, enzymes. So purifying, that's selection where if there is a non-synonymous change, it's bad for the protein and it's being weeded out of the population. And so the reason why I say that enzymes are under purifying selection is that we see that here is sort of the baseline, the accumulation of synonymous mutations over time. It has you know, an intermediate slope, whereas the slope here is shallower so that tells you that the, the rate of accumulation of non-synonymous mutations is actually slower through time than the underlying synonymous rate of change. And so that means a DNDS ratio of less than one. That means that there is purifying selection happening on that category of proteins. Okay, which type of genes experience the strongest positive selection? And I think this is pretty straightforward as well envelope proteins. So if this is the one that has purifying selection, the counter to that is positive selection, and this one here has the most positive selection, so it has the steepest uh, trajectory uh, for the number of non-synonymous changes that are happening over time. This slope is steeper than the underlying synonymous rate of change, and so it tells you that that DNDS ratio is actually greater than one, and that there's positive selection happening on this category of proteins. So we have one virus, one genome, different genes, different categories of genes, and different types of selection happening on those different genes. And then you have different rates of change in terms of whether the mutations are synonymous changes or non-synonymous changes. And so there's all of these variables, but they all kind of make sense in terms of what we've talked about already. And so one last bit of information related to this is that these ones that are experiencing positive selection the envelope and the accessory proteins, these are known to interact with the immune system and help to evade the immune system. And so these are thought to be under really strong selection during the infection because, you know, obviously the virus is trying to change and avoid the immune system, uh, change the targets or change the way it interacts with the, the immune system. And so it's under a lot of, a lot of selection to, to uh, change its amino acids. Whereas 
especially the, the enzymes and the sort of structural proteins, those have been optimized by natural selection to perform certain functions. They are not the targets as much uh, by the immune system. And so the selection that's acting on them is probably stabilizing in that you just want to have an optimal protein structure for its function. And that selection has been the same over time. So all of this figure really matches all of these things that we've been learning about and helps you sort of helps me at least visualize, you know, how there's selection will vary by site within the protein, depending if it's non-synonymous or synonymous. And also the types of natural selection will vary based upon the function of the protein and what it's, it's challenged to do change to avoid the immune system or stay the same to perform a specific function. Okay, now if we zoom out and we look at data, not just from within inside a single patient, but across multiple patients, we see this very interesting pattern. So this is a phylogeny where we have a bunch of strains from patient A, from patient B, C, D, E, and so forth. And it's from this paper down here. And they were doing analyses where they looked at the NDS ratios within patients and then the NDS ratios across strains from different patients. And they got this really interesting result where just like what we, we talked about, there's, there's a lot of the NDS values that are greater than one, that there's positive natural selection happening within patients, that the, the virus is actually changing and adapting to the, the patient, avoiding its immune system, avoiding the drug therapies that the patient is taking and so forth, maybe even uh, changing the way that it, it binds to cells to enhance that ability. And so there's lots of selection within patients. But what we find is that the DNDS ratio, when you start including viruses from multiple different patients, ends up giving you a value that's closer to one. And this does make sense in that when viruses are spread from one patient to the next patient, there's a huge bottleneck process that happens there. And so you get an effective population size that's very small. And so then you get a lot of mutations fixing in that next patient, um, not due to natural selection, but due to random genetic drift. And so during that bottlenecking process and the transfer from one patient to another patient, you've turned up the knob on the effectiveness of genetic drift and so you can actually see that pattern when you analyze sequences from different patients. So the sequences within a patient show a pattern of strong natural selection. Sequences between patients show a pattern of lots of genetic drift happening. Uh, so that's, that's pretty fascinating. So now you have um, differences not just within genomes, but at different periods of the progression of the disease. And so this just goes over uh, what I just said. Bottlenecks are, are driving the pattern between patients. And then natural selection for a number of different reasons, escaping the immune system, drug resistance, uh, interacting with immune cells and so forth are giving a pattern of positive selection. Okay, so one of the main drivers of HIV adaptation is drug resistance. So we do have lots of drugs for HIV, and we give them in combination treatments, if you remember. So HIV has a really high mutation rate. And so if we just gave patients a single drug, and if there are mutations available to confirm resistance to that drug, they would evolve resistance very quickly. And that is true. 
the first HIV drug that we had, we gave out to people and the HIV evolved resistance to it very rapidly. Uh, and then we're back to square one. So this is research I'm gonna talk about by Pluny. She is a faculty member at SFSU. If you Californians uh, at UCSD wanna go into grad school, uh, she does remarkable research. I really like her, her stuff a lot. And she's just up in the Bay Area. And this is work that she did when she was at Harvard on standing genetic variation and the evolution of drug resistance in HIV. And uh, this is the data. We've talked a lot about how combination therapies, where we put in multiple drugs, uh, are more effective. And we often have cited HIV as the case where these multiple drug therapies work, these cocktails work really well. This is the data that shows us that. And so here are the data. And this is another really complex figure that's mixing mathematical models and data uh, and statistics together. What I want you to do is just focus on the X and Y axes and the overall trend that they are showing, okay? And so what we have on the X axis are different treatments of a single drug, two drugs, two different drugs, and then three drugs together. And what we have is fraction of patients, fraction of patients with uh, detectable NVP resistance. Um, and so, okay, what is, what is this showing? This is showing the fraction of patients that have strains of HIV that have drug resistance. And so the higher fraction on this axis, the worse it is. Uh, you have more resistance. Uh, so the lower is the better. What this graph is focusing on is the resistance to a single drug, NVP, that is a part of all of these different treatments. So we're comparing apples to apples here. So we're looking at the resistance to this single drug, but under different therapies. And so all of the therapies include that drug, but when you have multiple other drugs with it, you actually see that there's less resistance to that specific therapy, showing that actually combination therapies are good because they, they suppress resistance to this drug and, and also to the other two drugs as well. And so this is the data that, that shows us that. It's really clean and really clear and is really, really important. Another feature of this paper that I thought was interesting and relates to the course um, the stuff that we've talked about is this relationship between effective population size and the probability of observing drug uh, resistance. And so the thing is, is that combination therapies work well, but as you increase the total population size of the virus, the more opportunities you have for that virus to mutate and get those drug resistance mutations. And so the higher the probability it is that you'll get uh, to actually observe uh, drug resistance. So that just makes sense in terms of uh, those early lectures that we learned about mutation rates and how um, the generation of genetic variation depends on the mutation rate times the number of genomes that have replicated. So that's the effective population size here. Okay, so a couple more things. This is research, this is just one example of people studying the fitness effects of different mutations in HIV, and then uh, creating what, what we have talked about before are fitness landscapes. And so this is a pretty complicated fitness landscape. Um, the way that you can read this, and this is just kind of a 
somewhat of a cartoon representation of their data. The way that you can read this is that these dark colorations are low, that's a valley in the fitness landscape, and then there are these hills and different topographies of the fitness landscape. And so genotypes that are positioned high up in the fitness landscape have high fitness, and genotypes that are lower in the fitness landscape have lower fitness. And so what they're also plotting here are these sort of evolutionary trajectories. If you start at different points in the fitness landscape, you can gain mutations and move up in the fitness landscape and reach higher and higher fitnesses. Uh, And then these circles are regions where there is stabilizing selection and you get stuck uh, in these different uh, regions in the fitness landscape. Lots of people have studied different proteins of HIV and mutations within those proteins and come up with these fitness landscape structures. This is for the ENV gene. Um, This is the thing that binds to the binds to the human cells, the CD4 cells. And so obviously these mutations have a a huge effect over whether or not it can get into the cell and so have a huge consequence for the fitness of the the virus. I'm showing you this just to talk about fitness landscapes a little bit more. I think it's a really nice way to sort of visualize how populations sort of mutate and gain fitness and evolve uh, over time. But I'm also showing you this fitness landscape Um, because this is different than the other fitness landscapes that we've looked at. The other fitness landscapes had just a single peak. Do you remember for antibiotic resistance, four mutations led to this high level of antibiotic resistance, five mutations were bad, six mutations were bad, three mutations were not as good as four mutations, and so it gave you this one peak where the optimality was four mutations. And so that might paint a, a very simple picture of how evolution works that you sort of get to the optimality and it's very easy to get to the optimality um, and then you're, you experience stabilizing selection once you're on that fitness peak. However, actually a lot of fitness landscapes are not that simple. They have all of these different topographical features where you have hills and valleys and you have different local peaks. So this is a local peak, that's a local peak, this is a local peak. These are local peaks over here. So you can see there's these evolutionary trajectories that take the population to a peak and then it gets stuck. And so this is the main issue with really predicting evolution is that if you have these really complex fitness landscapes, so first off, being able to measure these topographies is is still very difficult, even though we do have some examples. Um, But then being able to predict where the virus is going to go and where it's going to end up is difficult. Sometimes if you start out here, there's sort of a main attractor to this region and to and these genotypes will, will be selected for it and that's where you'll end up. Um, but there's other regions where if you start out here, you can end up in lots of different locations in the fitness landscape. And so what this means is that there's a lot of contingency or randomness to the evolutionary process. Even when you have evolution by natural selection, that's you know a guided process that's moving you up in fitness through time, Um, which mutations you get, in which order they occur in, uh, what trajectory you go on in this fitness landscape will determine where where that population ends up. And so when you have structures like this, evolution is a lot less repeatable and a lot more difficult to predict. Um, So that is one of the major challenges in evolutionary biology is how to predict evolution when you have these 
complex landscapes. These complex landscapes are caused by epistasis, those, those gene by gene interactions. And so when you have lots of epistasis in biological systems, it makes the problem of predicting evolution even harder. So that's just sort of a, a warning and pointing out where one of the main difficulties is in the field of predicting evolution in terms of understanding where infectious, infectious diseases are gonna move. Okay, so we are gonna wrap up the lecture. We might actually be a little bit early. I definitely owe you guys some minutes, so that's good. And I wanna talk about uh, genetic variation in the human population and how uh, some genetic variation is actually associated with immunity to HIV. So HIV is spread around the world, but some people actually have a mutation that uh, confer really high levels of resistance to HIV. And so the mutation is in this CCR5 protein. If you remember from back from the very beginning of the lecture, CCR5 is a co-receptor. So this is a protein on the outer membrane of the CD4 cell that the virus uses as a, a part of its infection process to bind to the cell and get into the cell. And so if you have a deletion, so that's described here, if you have a variant that's called CCR5 delta 32, so you have a deletion, that's what the delta refers to as a deletion in the, in the protein, then you are missing a part of the protein, maybe even the protein doesn't, I, I, I should know this, but may, it could be that the protein doesn't even form uh, and, and, and go to the outer membrane. Uh, I'm not sure exactly of the mechanisms for uh, how resistance uh, operates, but basically part of the protein is, to, is missing. Now HIV is no longer able to use that protein to get inside the cell, and so it, it doesn't have a successful infection. And so there are lots of humans actually in the world that, that have this. Um, there's, it, it's still a rare variant, but there are lots of examples of it. And so here is work from John November, who is now at the University of Chicago, where they're showing where there's high frequency of this mutation in human populations. So there are some human populations that have the mutation at a frequency of, you know, 18%. Uh, so that's, that's in a lot of individuals. It's still rare. Um, but what we find is that, that those populations tend to be in Europe and in Asia, but not in places that are being hit the hardest by HIV, uh, such as in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so the question is, well, if this mutation confers resistance to HIV, why isn't it at higher frequencies in human populations that are feeling the, the greatest burden of HIV? This graph is hard to uh, really see where that is in the globe, but you can see you can see the Mediterranean Sea and Italy. So this is just for reference for where we are in the world in using this graph. And so people for a long time were thinking, okay, well, why is this at such a high frequency in the population when a mutation that actually knocks out a huge part of the protein is at a high frequency? It's kind of mysterious. You know, it should be deleterious, but it's at a high frequency. And so maybe it plays a role in disease resistance, well, it does play a role in HIV resistance, but it's, at, it's in populations that have not been exposed to HIV for that long, so there shouldn't be enough time to really uh, select for these variants. And so what could have selected for these variants in the past? 
And so people hypothesize, well, maybe it confers resistance uh, to the bubonic plague, or maybe it confers resistance to smallpox, the Great Plague. And so uh, we know that Europe was hit hardest by those diseases. And so maybe that's why if this mutation confers resistance to those viruses, then that's why it's at such a high frequency in European populations. And so for a long time, it was thought that it was the bubonic plague explained it. But actually, it turns out that if you do the population genetics and you estimate um, what the selective pressure should have been for smallpox and how long ago smallpox was spreading around Europe, and you sort of figure out different characteristics of the dynamics, so we're not going to go into all those details, you find support that the high frequency of this mutation in European populations is due to selection by smallpox, uh, probably not much due to the bubonic plague uh, selection. But it's amazing to me that you can look at these geographical patterns and you can make estimates for um, selection coefficients given different selection pressures caused by different pandemics like we're going through right now and actually model what happened in the past or likely happened in the past and begin to test hypotheses about the agents of natural selection on human populations that are transforming our own genomes. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool stuff. And there's lots of examples now of where people have been able to pinpoint that certain mutations and certain genetic variation in the human genomes is actually due to selection from viruses. Also, just sort of to recap what I just went over, this mutation was driven by selection by smallpox. This also makes sense that mutations that give you resistance to smallpox would give you resistance to HIV because HIV is a pox virus. It's a type that's very similar. And so I just want to point out that this is another example of cross-resistance and biotropy. So this thing was selected for dealing with smallpox, but it's giving cross-resistance to HIV. And so it has this side effect, this benefit, that's an example of pleiotropy. So one last side note is that, so I, I don't know if you guys follow this story. It was in 2018. There was a researcher that actually genetically modified humans. And that researcher genetically modified them to alter this protein in order to confer resistance to HIV to two daughters. Uh, so they're twins. And so we actually, people have, this is not ethical. This person is in jail now for doing this. But we have actually altered human beings. And there are genetically modified people, two of them now. We don't want to stigmatize it because they're human beings, but that have had their genomes edited. And coincidentally, it's this mutation that we've been talking about. So there's natural genetic variation to HIV resistance, and then there's also genetic unnatural genetic variation uh, in the human population for uh, HIV resistance. Okay, so let's just wrap up. Let's sum summarize here. We have high mutation rate, high recombination rates. Uh, we have two copies of the genome, which facilitates even more recombination uh, and the ability to accumulate uh, more mutations in different genes. And so all of these things factor into creating a genome that can accumulate a lot of genetic variation very fast and enhance the evolutionary potential of HIV. So if you Google search evolution in HIV, I think you'll see that some people refer to this as like 
this super evolver and things like that. And it's true, HIV has great capacity to, to evolve, uh, even if those kind of, la that language is kind of cheesy, but uh, it is true. Um, okay, so uh, HIV arose multiple times in human, in, in human populations from other primates in the 20th century. Uh, we have talked in a previous lecture, we talked about looking at different parts of phylogenies and seeing you know, when uh, host range shifts happen. And really, I think HIV is this great example where we see multiple emergences from chimpanzees to humans or from other primates to humans. But it's not that all SIV variants have that same capacity. There were obviously certain SIV variants at a point in history that had increased potential to emerge into human populations. And so it'd be really nice to understand what are the characteristics of those SIVs and those genomes that allowed that emergence to happen. And so with that phylogenetic information, knowing that multiple emergences happened, that's then the, the key information that we need to know where to look for characteristics of diseases that emerge into human populations. I think that's going to be a major area of research going into the future. Okay. There's this trade-off for transmissibility and virulence. We've talked about it theoretically in the class, but here's the, and we had a little bit of data on phages, but now we have data on human diseases. Uh, there is that trade-off curve. And that the shape of that trade-off curve is such that it actually favors viruses that have less virulence and less transmissibility. Those viruses actually overall have higher fitness. And so natural selection is driving HIV to be more and more benign. We have adaptations within patients that we can see. Certainly the genes that interact with the immune system are under more positive selection than the genes that are used for what we call housekeeping uh, properties. We also see that there is genetic drift happening uh, between the transmission from one patient to another patient, but within a patient, a lot of the evolution is explained by natural selection. Combination therapies are effective at reducing genetic variation of drug resistance. We can measure HIV's fitness landscapes, and what we find is that there's a lot of complex topologies, a lot of epistasis, um, and that makes it very difficult to predict the evolution of HIV. And then the last bit is on how we have natural genetic variation that can confer resistance to HIV, uh, in that these variants are relatively high in some populations, mainly European populations, uh, because of past exposures to pox viruses. Okay. Thank you guys very much. Um, enjoy your weekend uh, and uh, take care. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.